0: I remember this incident. I was in school, in history class. The teacher was talking about a place that used to be called Abyssinia. Abyssinia. I liked the sound of that word, Abyssinia. It sounded like a romantic land of the imagination, somewhere strange and exotic. I remember tracing the map of Africa with my finger. The teacher was telling us this story about a war one day in the 30s Planes had been sent by the Italian dictator Mussolini. They'd flown over Tigray in northern Ethiopia and dropped cylinders that broke upon the land, exploding mustard gas. I thought that day of peasants in a field in the hills. I knew it was a poor country. And of of them hearing the planes and maybe being excited because they weren't used to planes and looking up, their eyes, looking up to heaven, maybe expecting something good to happen. And I felt the horror of it all. This this is about a journey. It's about drawing a circle from dark to light, from hungry fields and mass graves to trials and justice. In May five years ago I found myself on a long and difficult journey overland from Sudan into Tigray. I remember thinking about that image way back from my school days. Now there was another war going on, there was another famine. I was walking in those Tembien hills where Mussolini's gas had fallen. I had come to trace that map. But by now, no one was looking innocently at the sky. That time five years ago, it was an Ethiopian dictator, Mengistu, who was raining chemicals onto a dry land. For me, something happened during that trip, watching hungry people build roads by torchlight at night and curse the name of the dictator, or hear them dream of a better future when he had gone and maybe it would rain again. I made a promise then to myself that I'd go back when the war was over when peace was won, to see if those dreams had come true. lightning burst the skies, the rains poured down, breaking the still dry heat of that dusty border town in Sedan. We'd been stuck here for ten days in Gadarev, watching and waiting, waiting for travel papers, for a food convoy to come to carry us across the border into Tigray, into the heart of the famine and the civil war. That night it rained, the skies exploded over us, we sat in the dark A storm had put out the lights, listening to the voice of the BBC World Service. The voice hissed and faded. Curling notes of Arabic music broke through. Someone struck a match to light a cigarette. In the courtyard, I saw a lone figure of a young woman, a fighter with the Tigrayan rebels, the TPLF. She stood there in the middle of this thunderstorm, a radio held out, its aerial extended, dancing. ''Come out, come out,'' she called to me. ''Come out and feel the rain.'' I stood with her in the rain that night and let it wash over us. I wanted her to put down the aerial. It made me feel nervous in the storm. ''What are you celebrating?'' I called to her over the thunder. ''Our people have had a great victory against Mangistu. We've captured another town and killed many, many soldiers.'' They just said it on the radio in our language. I pictured that scene somewhere on the other side of the border and shuddered. This was no civil war for beginners. Her name was Martha. She was about 28, I think, vibrant and pretty, dressed in dungarees and a striped T-shirt. She had that traditional Christian cross etched on her forehead in a fainter, thinner line, like, like an earth tremor ran across her right cheek. A gift of war, she called it. She told me she'd run away from her home in the Tembien Hills when she was only 15. She'd camped outside the rebel army base for days until they took her in. She'd been one of the first women to join up. She'd swapped her traditional Ethiopian dress and plaited hair for fatigues and a crew crop, and had learned to use a Kalashnikov. She stood there that night, more like a child playing in the rain than a seasoned fighter who had ridden tanks into battles. She believed in the future. She'd lost her brother, friends, lovers in the war. She'd given birth and had left her child behind with some other woman to mind. Like Tigray itself, she'd made sacrifices. But when she said Ethiopia, it sounded more like utopia. The next morning, the sky was a perfect peaceful magenta blue. It was as if the thunderstorm had never happened. Martha had disappeared. Gone to the refugee camps, Gabrielle, our guide, said, I I never saw her again. That night, our papers and convoy came through. We drove to the border to meet it. Gabrielle, I asked as I left. What does matter mean? I mean, what does the word itself mean? He looked at me and smiled and seemed to understand the question. For us, he said, for us it means lightning a brilliant flash of lightning. And I think it was then I began to realize what was happening. This wasn't just a civil war of one Marxist regime against another. There was something going on. People believed that things were going to change. They had already had 15 years of war. Thousands had died. But they believed in it.
1: And my home is the love.
0: Those three days travelling at night into Tigray was one of the worst things I ever did. The only thing worse was having to do it again to come out. Twelve hours travelling through the night, clinging to the inside of a cabin of a food convoy, sharing it with TPLF fighters with their Kalashnikovs stuck between their legs and the drivers, all arguing or singing in Arabic and Tigrinian and American, it was incredible. You never slept. You just try to get through every minute. I was warned before the journey start. don't even think of stopping the convoy, it's too dangerous, no matter how sick you feel, how much you want to go to the toilet. The drivers, they would drive for 12 hours, they lived on milk and eggs. The danger was there, every time there was a flash of lightning, there'd be that fraction, that moment when somebody might think perhaps it was a MIG, rather than just a flash of lightning. The roads, they weren't roads, they were dirt tracks, they were mountainous, sinuous tracks which dropped off a sheer front, rivers that you went through at night. I learned not to look out the window, to recite things in my head, to get me through the minutes from A to z, to recite T.S. Eliot poems from school, anything that would make it pass. Here is no water, but only rock, rock and no water and the sandy road. The road winding above among the mountains Which are mountains of rock without water If there were water we should stop and drink Amongst the rock one cannot stop or think Sweat is dry and feet are in the sand If there were only water amongst the rock Dead mountain mound of carious teeth that cannot spit Here one can neither stand nor lie, nor sit. There is not even silence in the mountains, but dry, sterile thunder without rain. There is not even solitude in the mountains, but red, sullen faces sneer and snarl from doors of mud-cracked houses. If there were water. For hours you would travel and just dream about water. You'd dream about that sensation of drinking, of water passing through your mouth. And yet you couldn't. I was so afraid because I was thirsty, but I was afraid to drink because if I drank, I might have to stop the convoy. And if we stopped, I'd have 200 angry Sudanese and Tugrinian fighters screaming at me, that silly Ferengi white woman out there stopping the convoys while MiG jets at any moment could get us. I fantasised about water. There are images, from that first trip, that play within my head, forever perhaps. Like one night, that trip in May, when a frustrated and depressed Ethiopian aid worker bundled me into a truck at 11pm to take me on the rambling road from Adewa to Adigrad to witness for myself the ghost-like figures gaunt and clad in sand-coloured robes emerge from the dark to collect their famine food. Everything, even food handouts and markets, happened at night. Darkness was the only refuge in this war. Before us in the night, Rush Reed torches lit up villages with a biblical glow. Sacks of donated grain, gift of America, Canada or Europe, piled high. And someone, like a voice on Judgment Day, called out a list of names into the dark. Abraha Haile Maryam two sacks but Han Gebra one the ghostly figures stepped out to lift their sack onto their frail shoulders and walked off into the night I watched and felt my insides twist I knew the guilt of every human being forced to witness another's torment women came up to me pleading help us help us they held my hand Tell the white people to send food, they said. Tell the white people we are dying. I felt impotent and shamed. The world had long forgotten Ethiopia. By 1990, the glow of live aid had lasted perhaps a season. And five years later, Mengistu Haile Mariam was bombing food convoys carrying the snake-like passage of aid across the sand trails from Sudan. Some agencies even refused to carry that route. It's too political, a Catholic priest told me from the security of his base in Addis Ababa as the jets flew north to towns like Housian or the port of Massawa in Eritrea.
1: Oh yeah we are already in the famine we are already people are dying around and uh, especially around the village where we cannot go or people cannot reach we know already that people are we are in a worse in a worse situation i think of that uh, 84 85 because 84 85 least we had supply with uh, with airplane the roads were more or less open we we could get the food now there is only this
0: It's funny, but that time, that first trip, my memories, my visual memories of Tigray are all of the night and the hours of shade. I would see places in the first hours of dawn or the last hours of the day. Towns awash with pale lights from the early sun or faded glows of red and purple from the setting sun. It was a strange, magical, mystical world because I, I couldn't travel during daylight hours. Farenji, Farengi the children would call after me, running up, demanding pens, wanting to hold hands. They were always highly amused that I had hair growing on my arms. People would still come out and say, The Italians are coming. Some of the older people could even remember Italian. One town we came through, a woman Deborah came out, took us by the hand into her home. She had two children fighting in the rebel army. Her mother, Mariam, could even remember the Italians and told us about that awful day of the mustard gas. She remembered it well. Deborah listened and smiled. She'd said all they'd ever known was war. Outside her one-roomed stone house, she had made a dugout to escape Mengistu's bombs. A wasted cluster bombshell sat beside her stove. She recycled bits and pieces of bombs to make her kitchen. The women. I want to talk about the women. One woman I remember meeting in a town who talked about living in the village before she became a fighter. She came up to greet me with her child. She said, before this, I was a woman with nothing. I had married. My father arranged it. I had children. I had no rights. I had no land. I had nothing. I couldn't read or write. I became a fighter, I became someone. She says, now I can read and write. Now I'm teaching other women to read and write. Now my son is proud of me. I'm not just a woman in the village, I'm somebody. Something happened when I was there. Other people have told me the same. People who went cross border or people who went during those years, They went as dispassionate observers, they went as aid workers, they went as journalists, they went just to see. And they became involved, they became taken by what was happening. That music was Gabriel Celesse's. He was one of the fighters. He was young, enthusiastic, idealistic. He would bring me tea, help rinse my hair. The Kalashnikov would lie there like a useless weapon. He believed in what he was doing. It wasn't just a matter of this was something that he'd been forced to do. You began to believe that you wanted to see their future. You wanted to see if it happened. People would say, when will you come back? And I would say, when you're in Addis Ababa, when Mengistu is gone. (laughs) A year later, in May 91, I was sitting in Paris, I'd almost forgotten about Ethiopia. I was doing other things. Tigray was right at the back of my head when I turned on the radio. And the radio said, the TPLF and the Eritreans had taken Addis Ababa. Mengistu was gone. He'd fled to Zimbabwe. There were celebrations in the streets. The statues of Marx and Lenin had been pulled down. And to this day, I regret, I did not drop everything and go to Charles de Gaulle and get on a plane and go to Addis Ababa and be there. But I said I'd go back for the elections. For me, Addis Ababa was a bit scary. It was packed, crowded, full of beggars, full of lepers, traffic all over the place, noise, people rushing, people grabbing out of you, people always calling to you. In Addis, no white person walks anywhere. There was a huge movement of people into Addis Ababa after the fall in May 1991. Now it's crowded, there isn't enough buildings, there's not enough sanitation, the roads aren't proper. The city is basically a mess, it's a chaos. I mean, it wasn't always like that. Addis Ababa used to be the pearl of Africa. This was once the most splendid city in East Africa. I mean, I've read accounts of Emperor Haile Selassie's days when he held banquets and balls for world leaders in Addis Ababa, and there are beautiful buildings. I mean, I remember reading Rizard Kabuchinsky's account in the 60s of a banquet that the emperor had held in the old palace. Roads had been built, wine and caviar had been flown in from Europe. Maria McKeeba had flown in from Hollywood to serenade the world leaders for that opening of the Organization for African Unity. But those were other days. Now the city is a mess, a sprawling mess where thousands have flooded into it, looking for food, Cover anything. It's the price of war. I suppose I half imagined that I might find Matha again, bump into her in a street or an office, and ask her if five years later her utopia had been delivered. ...but no one was too sure where she was. It's May Day today... ...in Isles Ababa... ...a week after Easter... ...and a week before the country's first democratic elections. The drums are still beating throughout the city. It's the wedding season. After the rigorous Lenten fast... ...there are weddings in almost every street. It's unbelievable. Everywhere I go, people are getting married... The tables groaning with food. The air is filled with laughter and clapping and dancing. Today, I hope I will finally make it back to Tigray. When I went back to Tigray, then I began to understand why I tried so hard to come back. Then the five years began to lose meaning and I began to recognise the places. Then I began to see the circle completing itself. When I arrived in Macaulay, it was like something out of a dream. I had said I'd come back when the war was over. When I could see Tigray during daylight, all my images from the last trip had been of dusk and dawn, in those twilight hours when everything is pale, washed-out colours. I'd never seen it during the day. It was strange to see places that I'd become so familiar with, places that I understood and knew in bright, brilliant sunshine. People were building, people were trading, people were having ordinary, boring, happy lives. Then I began to feel I'd come home and understand the nature of the journey I'd made. Going back to Housian was for me one of the most emotional parts of the journey. Driving into the market town at a quarter to noon just a few days before the election it was like stepping back in time. I'd come on market day, with thousands of people from across the region there trading animals and goods, food and clothes. As it struck noon, I remembered it. it had been noon on that June day seven years ago when the market had been blasted by Mangistu's jets and helicopters for hours on end. Two and a half thousand people died that day. Their bodies and the bodies of the animals had piled up high in the square, And Halcyon had remained a ghost town for years. When I'd been here five years ago and had asked to go to Halcyon, people wouldn't even bring me. They said, no, Helen, don't go. It's too sad. There's nothing there. It's just an an empty space on the plains. This time, when we went off the road after leaving Adigrat. It was wonderful. There was houses being built. The road had been resurfaced. There were people walking over the hills towards the market. It was cacophony of noise, colour, sounds. Women were measuring teff out of the scales, selling their clothes to passerbys. There was a wonderful sense of life. I watched it and felt this is what it was about. This is what the the circle was about. There was a sense of life that hit you like waves of heat from the earth. Yet this here had been one of the largest mass graves in Ethiopia's bloody civil war. I noticed in the center of the crowd, there was a monument, a MIG shell that had remained as it had fallen. A is a symbol, not just of the war and of the past, but of hope and the future.
1: there is a, a big change. Uh, people were living in hell, actually, uh, and now there is an air of freedom. Uh, people are raising fresh air. Although there may not be a thorough change in, um, in terms of economy, in uh, terms of well-being, still uh, there are a lot of things to be done, but sometimes uh, what's more important could be some people perhaps even their freedom.
0: on the plane to Tigre. He's this large, smiling man. We laughed and joked a lot. We had to hang around the airport for hours. The plane took off and landed again twice. There was some problem with it. We ran into each other again on my last night in Michele, Tigre's capital. And like so many other conversations in Ethiopia, we got to talking about the past, about the Mengistu years. Tedese told me he'd been a, an artist A painter during the war years, and that he'd been forced at gunpoint to paint Mengistu's portrait, the wall murals that had covered Ethiopia's towns. Up with this, down with that, he hadn't any choice. Helen, he said, I lost so much during those years, so many friends. His own brother had been shot for nothing, he said, his body dumped into the street. His friends and colleagues had died, Or gone into exile. He had stayed to help raise his brother's children. It had been a living hell. Sometimes, he said, a shot rang out in front of you as he walked, a body fell and you could do nothing but step over the corpse, swallow your tears and walk on. There were years of terror. Now he's working as a researcher with the Department of Agriculture on reforestation and water downs projects which are essential to the future of this dry land. People, he says, can learn to forgive, sure, forgive. Forget? Never. a story, like so many others told to me this time, reminded me of the insanity of the Red Terror years and of an account I read by Ryszard Kapuchinsky, of the madness following Mengistu's coup.
1: I penetrated the muddy alleys, making my way into houses that, from the outside, looked empty and abandoned. I was afraid. The houses were watched and I was afraid of getting caught along with their inhabitants. Such a thing was possible since they often made a sweep through a neighbourhood or even a whole quarter of the town in search of weapons, subversive leaflets or people from the old regime. All the houses were watching each other, spying on each other sniffing each other out. This is civil war. This is what it's like. I sit down by the window and immediately they say, ''Somewhere else, sir. Please, you're you're visible from the street. It would be easy to pick you off.'' A car passes, then stops. The sound of gunfire. ''Who was it? These? Those? And who, who today are these? And who are those who are against these? Just because they are these?'' The car drives off, accompanied by the barking of dogs. They bark all night. Addis Ababa is a dog city full of pedigreed dogs running wild, vermin-eaten with malaria and tangled hair.
0: Sunday, May 7th, Addis Ababa. It's a beautiful morning, it's election day, but it's more like a wedding than an election. I can hear drums and people clapping, People are out, getting ready for weddings, the taxis are booked. I can't find a taxi to cross the city, they're all booked for the weddings. It's funny, but when I was here five years ago, I never saw a wedding. People didn't get married in the North in the hard years of the famine. There wasn't food for the feasts. Now, there's an air of celebration. People aren't that excited about the elections. The election booths are quiet and low-key. There's none of the excitement of South Africa a year ago. There's few cues and little trouble, but still, I look at the weddings and feel a sense of hope.
2: I feel very pleased that the Ethiopian people have at last got choices. Um, I feel also extremely proud that there was a great uh, showing of women voters. And that means quite uh, uh, incredibly important because women are the cornerstone of development anywhere in, in the world. And the democratization process has brought women out to vote on, on their lives, on the way Ethiopia is going to go in the future. Uh, this means that we are on the right road as well.
0: Natsna Asfa is young, bright, articulate, I met her just days after the election. She'd just come back from Tigray. It was clear that the EPRDF, the transitional government, had had a landslide victory and that she had been elected. She was ebullient, excited, full of dreams and hopes for the future. She painted a picture of an Ethiopia that would one day feed itself and wouldn't look to the West for handouts. She's very much the new face of Ethiopia. She worked for the TPLF in Europe during the war and has since become one of the senior women... In politics, there, as we talked, a young boy came up to us, begging one of the thousands on the streets of Addis Ababa. He was looking for money. Natsana said, "Son, you must become a shoeshine boy. You must learn to earn money, not beg for it." He looked at her disbelievingly. It was a tough, hard statement for a street kid to take, but that's very much Natana's message. It's a message of the new government. Break the begging bowl."
2: We believe that by democratizing society we can unleash a great force for development uh, within the pastoral and uh, agricultural societies in in Ethiopia. And in the next five years we know we will be food sufficient and we will stop depending on societies that have uh, surplus food. This is very important for our development. This is very important for industrialization in the future. It's very important for our dignity as a people.
1: Just an aging trouble boy And in the wars I used to play And I've called it you To many a torture session Now they say I am a war criminal And I'm fading away Father, please hear my confession
0: In Amaric, the prison is known as the place at the bottom of the world Just days after that election, I decided to go there to take a step back to visit Mengistu's men, the officers of the old regime, the army council of General Mengistu. Many of them now sit in prison, awaiting trial for war crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes of genocide, like the bombing of Hausian. The first trial opened at the beginning of this year. Mengistu himself is named, even though he fled to Zimbabwe in 91. I stand in this prison within a prison. It's an open compound with two tiers. There are hundreds of men here, crammed together. They've been here for maybe four years, most of them. Across from me, the former Prime Minister, Fekir Selassie, sits playing chess. He scowls at me and says he doesn't want to talk. Above him, two army generals stare impassively into the square. Their eyes covered by sunglasses the only sign of their old status combat jackets they're wearing in the square men young and old are washing clothes in an old stone basin behind them there's a bingo game going on the numbers are being called out like a mantra in a americ rows of men once players in a military regime are marking the numbers off their eyes bent Staring at the makeshift cards. I wonder what the prizes are. Others walk silently around the square, staring into some distant memory. Some of the younger men are keen to talk, to tell me. There were no war crimes. It was government policy. We did as we were told. It was our duty. They don't want to talk about the dead, they don't want to talk about the past.
2: What is the special thing about Mungsten? That's the question that every prisoner is asking about.
0: You feel that in this case, like in some other cases, nobody should have been prosecuted for what happened?
2: In my individual assessment, there might be some uh, wrong deeds, which are committed by individual cases, so that must be brought to court. court. not oh, every crime must not be uh, uh, not be left for something. But you see, uh, many of the things or revolutionary activities were done according to the rules of the government. So these are not crimes.
0: An old man comes up to me. He's he's tall and thin. Dressed in a faded tracksuit, he greets me and says his name is Mama Waldi. Mama Waldi, I think. Some vague memory stirs in my head. I, I know this name. Who is he? And then I remember this was once one of Ethiopia's greats. I remember my father talking to me about this man. He tells me he won gold for Ethiopia, he won the marathon in Mexico in '68 gold and silver in Mexico.
1: Mamo Waldi, who was second here in the 10,000 meters earlier this week, he was fourth in the 10,000 meters in Tokyo. Mamo Waldi of Ethiopia now, coming in with just 50 or 60 yards to go to the tape. Everybody's standing to applaud this wonderful runner from Ethiopia. Here he comes, he breaks the tape now, he trots by, up go his arms in the air, and there's a tremendous... He wants to talk air. about
0: his medals, the air, about the point. past. He doesn't want to talk about the war, the trials, or why he's there. He says, I only got bronze in Montreal. You know why? It was because my running shoes. As if that's the the only point, the only detail of the past that haunts him. I watched him as he walked away, an old, greying man, and wondered what he'd done in the old regime, what, what had been his role. Later, someone tells me he's accused of being a leader of the Red Terror, the purges of the 70s. It seems incredible. And yet, and yet, that's the reality of the past. It was ordinary people who did the bidding of Mengistu. <laughs> The other day, I got a letter from Tedesse. He writes from Addis Ababa that the rainy season has started. I had told him I was visiting the prison to see Mengistu's men, and he writes, eloquently I think. Yesterday, I met somebody who had once been a big shot in the regime. He was my old teacher from school. We used to run into each other all the time in Addis during the regime, but then he always ignored me and pretended he didn't know me and walked on by. But yesterday, we passed in the street. He stopped and greeted me warmly with a kiss, as we do with someone we really missed or are very close to. He'd lost weight, looked shabby and lonely. I couldn't help but feel sorry for him. You know, Helen, life in reality, it's not the same as in the movies, where we get to feel good if we punish the baddies. I guess society has to punish criminals because there is no better choice to maintain law and order and meet justice. And we, we have to learn to live with it, no matter how we feel. Ethiopia is like this river of sand diversity of colour. There's 80 different races there, 100 languages. And you know, that's the challenge, really, for Natsanet and for the new government to build a new Ethiopia. It's not just for Tigrinians, but for everyone, for all those faces, for all those tongues. Sometimes it seems to me, places and people from far apart become bound together, their lives and time cross. It was a bit like that for me, in Ethiopia. I mean, this was about a circle, but it doesn't end or it began, for me or for all the Ethiopians who shared my journey. Mengistu, Mengistu remains in Zimbabwe. His trial for war crimes continues in Addis Ababa, but for the others, for Martha and Tadesse, for Gabrielese and Natsanat, perhaps there is the air to breathe, the chance to escape his shadow.